0: Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm also one of the pastors here, and I am excited to share with you some really simple but really powerful stuff from Jesus today. Uh, a few minutes ago, we just heard that announcement for Tech Mania Day. I know I'm getting really pumped up for that. Um, and I actually want to start off by sharing a story that I told at Techmania a few years ago. So if any teenagers are left in the room, some of them have already heard this. But for the rest of you, I think it's time that I shared with you how I started and then very quickly stopped dating my first girlfriend. Um, Actually, after you hear the story, you can be the judge of whether this should qualify as dating or not, but I don't have another word for it, so that's what we're going to call it, at least for now. Um, This was sometime right before or maybe around the beginning of middle school. I had a best friend named Kevin, and I have to admit that A large percentage of what Kevin and I talked about was the ladies. Um, (laughs) Kevin had a crush on this one particular girl in our class, and I didn't have a crush on a certain girl, but I did have a list of several girls that I thought were really pretty. And if any of them had ever shown any interest in me, I probably could have been convinced quite easily to like any of them. I had, of course, shared this list with Kevin. He knew all about it. Kevin wanted to ask this one girl that he really liked, but he didn't think she should say yes if no one else in our class was dating. So he had this great idea that I should start dating someone first to boost his chances. <laughs> so he called me up one, one week in the middle of the night, not in the middle of the night, in the middle of the week, he called me up one night and he explained this brilliant strategy, and then he said, what do you think? Would you date anyone? I mean, I, I'll even call him up and ask him for you. Now, As you can probably imagine, this sounded like a foolproof plan to me. So I responded with, Sure, man, you know the list. (laughs) Kevin paused and then said, Yeah, so I know she's not in the official list, but what about Emily? She's really pretty too. I said, Huh, I hadn't thought of that. Why Emily? Now, Kevin, being the excellent planner that he was, replied with, Well, I saw her after school today, and I asked her, you know, if you would want to date her, would she want to date you? And she said, Yes. So, I thought to myself, I barely know Emily, I'm not really sure that I have any romantic interest in her at all, but it does sound like this would be a guaranteed yes. (laughs) So you know what? Let's go for it. So, Kevin called her up and told her that I was asking her out. She said yes, he called me back to share the good news, and bam, (laughs) we were officially dating. We walked into school the next morning, and I think both Emily and I felt really awkward about the whole thing. We didn't know what you were supposed to do when you were dating, so we pretty much avoided making any eye contact and sat as far away from each other as possible. (laughs) Things started off pretty slowly, and they never really picked up much momentum either. Um, The rest of the week went by very similarly, no eye contact and sitting on opposite sides of the class. Friday afternoon rolled around and on the way out of school, I grabbed Kevin and I said, dude, I got to break up with Emily. (laughs) And he was like, what? Why would you want to do that? And as earnestly as a fifth or sixth grader possibly could, I looked at Kevin and said, I just don't think that I love her. (laughs) And he was like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense then. Are Are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And one more thing. Since you asked her out for me, I need you to call her and break up with her for me, too. Thanks, man. (laughs) Have a great weekend. Love is central to a romantic relationship. Now, maybe for 10- or 11-year-old me, even a small crush on Emily would have been a good enough starting point, but there was nothing. And so it seems like it should have been pretty obvious from the start that we were missing the central ingredient of love, but somehow I totally missed that. And I share this because we're going to open up the Bible in a minute. We're going to look at a passage where Jesus talks about how the central ingredient to living out our faith is love, and this also seems like it should be really obvious. But for some reason, Jesus noticed that all the religious leaders around him who were the most devout people there were completely missing this. And this passage is a simple but powerful invitation to reflect on whether love is really central for us or whether we could be drifting off course sometimes too. So we're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. As we're focusing on just simply following Jesus, we're going to be looking at a passage from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. If you want to open up a Bible or a Bible app to follow along, uh, it's about three quarters of the way through the Bible, right towards the beginning of the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke and John right after that. And we'll be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34 but I want to pause and pray first. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it just shows us who you are and who we are in you and what we're designed for. God, we ask that you would speak to us today. We don't believe that your word is stale or even though this was written down a long time ago, uh, that it's not living and active. So God, bring this alive in us vibrantly today. Awaken in us whatever you want to speak to us with this. Uh, encourage and challenge each of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus emphasizes here that life in the kingdom of God is lived through love. But for a couple different reasons, the people who should have known this the most were totally missing it. And to understand how that happened a little more clearly, I want to back up and look at the context of how we got to this passage. At the beginning of Mark chapter 11, the chapter right before this, uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And last week we touched on what happens right after Jesus arrives, as David shared with us about the fig tree with the false promise of fruit, and then how Jesus cleared out the temple. But if you kept reading after that, for the rest of chapter 11, and then all of chapter 12 leading up to our passage today, that is filled with several different confrontations, one right after another, between the religious leaders in Jerusalem and Jesus. These religious leaders are aggressively trying to question Jesus' motives and character and authority, and they try to undermine him and set him up with trick questions. But why? Why did the most devout religious leaders not even recognize the God that they claimed to worship when he was standing right in front of them? One of the major reasons I think that they didn't recognize Jesus is they weren't actually living according to God's ways, focused on loving God and loving their neighbors. In fact, based on several other packages passages, they were a little too focused on loving themselves to notice that stuff. They loved being religious leaders because it made them feel important. Everyone else had to admire and respect them. It came with some extra luxuries with the position. And even though Rome uh, was occupying them, these religious leaders had managed to maintain a delicate balance where they still held on to a lot of power and influence. And they really loved that, too. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, his radical presence threatens to upend this delicate balance they've been maintaining and just mess up their position, their power, their prestige that they've gotten used to and they hold on to so tightly. There's no thought in the way they react to Jesus about whether their reactions are based in loving God or loving their neighbors it's all just focused on themselves. But our passage actually sticks out as a major contrast with the surrounding confrontations because this teacher of the law who asked this, questions, this question is actually being sincere. And there's a couple of clues in this passage for how we can tell that. Uh, we can tell because, first, he doesn't just show up and jump in right with his own agenda. Uh, we see first that he shows up as Jesus is talking about some other stuff. He notices and listens with an open heart to what Jesus is saying. But secondly, this is the one and only place in all four of the Gospels where one of the religious leaders publicly agrees with Jesus. The only time that happens. So this man approaches with a genuine question, and he essentially asks Jesus, which is the most important command in all the Bible? Now, this is not the first time someone had been asked that question, actually. This was a pretty popular question that a lot of rabbis in that time period wrestled with, and many had given their shot at their best answers to it. The Jewish religious leaders had counted 613 different commandments in the Old Testament. And then on top of those, they had added hundreds more of their own interpretations and extra laws just to make sure they could clarify everything as black and white as possible. But in doing this, they lost sight of living out their faith through a relationship with God based in love and a love for their neighbors, and instead, they started following a pattern of legalism. They ended up focusing primarily on trying to measure themselves up through how well they could follow these hundreds of laws and how they could measure up everybody else around them against them too. And this legalism built up so many laws on top of interpretations, on top of commandments, that nobody could keep track of them anymore, except the most professional religious teachers. So to try to simplify things again, people started asking rabbis, which is the most important commandment? Because if you could find a good answer to this, you might be able to use that as a filter to understand and interpret all the rest of the commandments and remember how they fit together. Or maybe as a summary to live by when you can't remember All the rest of them. So the question is asked of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus starts off by beginning with an Old Testament passage that every Jewish person around him would have known by heart. They use this as a prayer called the Shema, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and the whole thing reads like this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Devout Jews said this as part of a special prayer every morning and every evening. And they took it so seriously that they wrote it down on small pieces of parchment, put those in tiny leather boxes, and they strapped them to bands they could wrap around their wrists or a headband that they could put on their foreheads during prayer time. They also put a copy in a box that's called a mezuzah that they attached to the door of their houses, and they touched it every time they left their houses or returned home again. You may know some Jewish people right now that still have a mezuzah attached to the outside of their house. So everybody listening to Jesus knew how central this passage was. This was something that you were meant to stop and reorder and center your whole life around. And Jesus builds on the centrality of that to emphasize that his whole answer coming up is going to carry that kind of significance. What kind of impact could it have on the way we live if this greatest commandment from Jesus To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves was interwoven all throughout our lives like that was for them. The second half of this answer that Jesus gives is taken from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And though Jesus was only asked for one commandment, he combines two together. As if to say that these don't work when separated from each other. To point out that to love God with our whole hearts also means we must love those who are created in his image as well. There are similar questions and answers about this greatest commandment, similar interactions that you can find in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew as well. And each one has a little bit of a different part added onto it that's not here. Uh, In Luke, there's a follow-up question where someone says, so who counts as my neighbor? I mean, who do I have to love like this? And Jesus makes it clear that everyone around us counts as a neighbor, even those that we might think of as a stranger or potentially look at as an enemy. In the Gospel of Matthew, we get an extra comment where Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The point he's making there is that God has never given an arbitrary command just to see if we can keep up with what he randomly decides to call right and wrong. No, every command is right and wrong because it helps us learn how to love God and love our neighbors. That's why they're there in the first place. But there's one more layer here. The command to love God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves is like a plant growing up out of the ground. But there's a set of roots, an assumption underneath this that all of the listeners around Jesus would have realized and known because of the context of this passage and what else is around it. Loving God and loving our neighbors is meant to be the natural response that grows out of our experience of receiving love from God first. And the verses right before and right after this Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6. The focus is on how God has rescued his people and delivered them from slavery out of Egypt. How he's bringing them to a new land flowing with milk and honey and an abundance of blessings, all kinds of things that they have not worked for, but he is going to give them as gifts just because he wants to. This all communicates the idea to them that God loves you, God has rescued you, God cares for you, God enjoys blessing you. And as you receive and experience that love from God, let it grow in you a love returning back to God and spreading out to your neighbors. Later on in the New Testament, one of the closest followers of Jesus The disciple named John, who spent day and night with Jesus for several years, he captures this whole idea uh, in the letter 1 John, where he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us receive God's love, let it grow in you and overflow into a love returning back to God and out to your neighbors. That's the pattern that this passage from John and the greatest commandment is talking about. And the teacher in our main passage who asked that question, when Jesus responds, he enthusiastically agrees. He says, yes, loving God and our neighbors, that's more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices you could possibly give. Now, he uses very particular words when he says this phrase. The word he uses for sacrifices refers to a particular kind of sacrifice where Jewish people would come to the temple, they would give a representative portion that was burnt as a sacrifice on the altar, and then they would eat the rest as a celebratory meal. But the other word that he uses for burnt offerings is a different category. That is a type of sacrifice that was wholly dedicated to God. The entire thing was put on the altar and consumed by the fire there, and nobody was to touch it at all. It was as sacred as possible. And essentially what he's saying is even the most sacred religious traditions and ceremonies are empty and even a contradiction if we're not putting love for God and love for our neighbor into practice alongside of them. And Jesus agrees, saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is a phrase sometimes kind of tricky to wrap our minds around. It comes up about 80 times in the Gospels and about 150 times throughout the Bible. And we could probably spend several weeks just talking about what exactly the kingdom of God is and what that means. But to boil it down, give kind of a simple comment, the kingdom of God is the idea that God's way of life is breaking into the world through Jesus. And that anyone who begins to follow Jesus and live as he calls us to live is now living as a citizen as part of God's kingdom and helping spread that. So Jesus lays out this greatest commandment as the way of life for the kingdom of God. And according to Jesus, that means that life in the kingdom of God is lived through love. We enter the kingdom of God as we receive and experience that love from God our Father. And then we live as citizens who belong to the kingdom of God when that love stirs up in us a love for God and our neighbors. If this is the way of life for the kingdom of God, if this is the greatest commandment, as it's called, is this what our lives revolve around? And how does this commandment encourage, invite us, or even challenge us if we start to drift off course like those religious teachers did. I think it might help to consider uh, a few scenarios, a few ways where we can accidentally end up living according to other commandments, even if we don't mean to. One of these ways is a lot like the religious leaders, when we begin to focus more on ourselves than on expressing our love for God and neighbors. This is always going to be a temptation for fallen humans, no matter the time, the location, or the place But I've seen this idea play out lately with the idea of self-care. Now, I want to be really careful how I explain this because I don't want to hate on self-care here. I think there's a healthy and even a godly way that we should do this and where it's important to steward who God made us to be. But one pattern I'm noticing is that we can get so overwhelmed with our schedules and with unhealthy patterns in life. And then as a reaction to that, self-care becomes our greatest commandment. We begin thinking that it's on us to refill our own tanks, and we take every possible free moment to focus on ourselves because we're so worn out by the pace of our lives. But in the process, we squeeze out any space to love God and love our neighbors. Healthy self-care is good, and it should refresh and fill us up, but sometimes that requires rethinking our entire overwhelming schedule that got us there in the first place. And if our lives are going to be lived with self-care in line with Jesus' greatest commandment, it also means recognizing that this pattern of receiving God's love and loving God and loving our neighbors is actually a core part of what can fill us up. The other way that we noticed that the religious leaders got off track was by replacing the core concerns of God with legalism. They did this through obsessive rulemaking and rule-following. And and if this becomes our default greatest commandment, we might notice it when we start to feel self-loathing, when we don't live up to our own expectations, or we get judgmental attitudes because other people aren't meeting the standards that we have for them. But this can play out in other ways, too. The underlying drive behind legalism is the idea of proving ourselves through performance. So it may come out by making us think that the ultimate goals in life are getting into an impressive school or validating my worth through my career or affording a bigger house to measure up with everybody else. Beyond these two patterns that kind of relate to the ones the religious leaders had, I think there's a few more that in our time we might be particularly susceptible to falling into as false versions of the greatest commandment. One of them is is to live as if the ultimate way to grow in our faith is by gaining more knowledge. Now, just like self-care, knowledge is not actually a bad thing, but when priorities get out of order, things can get funky. If we look back at the answer Jesus gives, he says that we are to love with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, the main idea with this is that we are to love God and our neighbors with our whole selves, holding nothing back. But he uses these ideas of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as a representation of different aspects of who we are and how we can love. Now, in Jewish culture of that time, some of these things actually have slightly different symbolism for what they mean than they do for us, and it'd be a little confusing to get all into that. So I'm going to simplify this a little bit and use a phrase that we often use in youth group, which is head, heart, and hands. Uh, We say that head represents our knowledge and intellectual growing. Heart represents our feelings and attitudes. And hands represents our actions and what we put into practice. And we try to remember that growing as a follower of Jesus means learning to live and love more like Jesus in our head, heart, and hands. But in the Western world, and particularly in the highly educated culture around us, it can be pretty easy to fall into a pattern where our head is growing a whole lot but our heart and hands are lagging behind. We can read our Bibles in a strictly academic way. We can sign up for Bible study after Bible study, and maybe we we learn how to outline Exodus or understand the doctrines of Romans. But if this isn't working its way into our heart and out to our hands, it won't actually help us grow in loving God and loving our neighbors. In 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 1, the Apostle Paul talks about this very problem by saying, we know that we all possess knowledge, But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. If we pursue growing in knowledge as the ultimate means of growing our faith, we need to step back and let that serve helping us learn to love God and love our neighbors more and be part of that process, not its own process. One of the most famous theologians in all of church history, St. Augustine, summed this up by saying, Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them But put such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, he does not yet understand them as he ought. Or to put it in more modern language, growing as followers of Jesus ultimately means growing to love God and our neighbors more, and the rest is just the details of how that gets worked out. A similar way we can drift off course is by doing something that I'm going to call spiritual compartmentalizing. This comes up when we face difficult issues in our lives or maybe in our culture, and sometimes we can be tempted to minimize the importance of putting things into action or making real life changes. We might say things like, we should just focus on spiritual growth or spiritual transformation. Now, most problems do have a spiritual component, but Jesus would say, as we read the Bible and really understand the concept, that the spiritual side of things is deeply interconnected, the rest of ourselves, and we can't really so easily isolate it out as if it's a separate category. When we do this spiritual compartmentalizing, it can actually stunt us from wholly growing and and putting our beliefs into practice and learning to love God and our neighbors with our whole selves, as Jesus talks about. One practical example where this comes up in 1 John, it talks about how love must lead to action. 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Maybe at some point you've heard a much shorter version of this point in song lyrics or a book title or some other pop culture reference. If you've ever heard the phrase, love is a verb. I think Jesus would agree with that, and he would also add, and love takes our whole selves. The final way that I I see uh, it can be easy to accidentally morph the greatest commandment into something else that it wasn't intended to be is when we think that love means following our feelings instead of taking on and growing in the character of Christ. We might read from the passage I read earlier that says, God is love, but then interpret that backwards. Start with our own feelings about what we think love is and then project that onto what we think that means God is like. But we need to reverse that. We need to start by understanding what the character of God is like and then learn from that what love really is. Love is not just a good feeling or a relativism that endorses everything. And if you work to love your friends, your family, and neighbors, that doesn't mean you're always going to agree on everything. And love has no opposition to God's truth, because they both work together for our good. Now, this certainly is not an excuse for unchecked anger or for condemning attitudes, but it's the reason why sometimes love is expressed as a push for justice, just like our passage from last week when Jesus clears out the temple. And that's why it's so important not to just follow our feelings, but to model our love after the way Jesus loves Life in the kingdom of God is lived through love. And if we're going to live as citizens of the kingdom of God and follow the greatest commandment of Jesus, then we need to internalize this pattern. We need to open ourselves up to receive the love of Jesus. Let that grow in us and overflow out back to God and to our neighbors. And in doing that, it might help to remember how the Shema shared practical ways for the Israelites to practice reordering their lives around it. Perhaps we might need our own take on that for Jesus' greatest commandment. So I'm going to close with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Teach this to your children and talk about it at dinner or when you're driving in your car. Write this on sticky notes and put them on your steering wheel or the bathroom mirror. Paint this on canvases and hang them up in your living room or save them on the lock screen of your phone. Remember this as you decide how to spend your time and your money. Trust that God's love goes ahead of you as you take risks to love the people that he puts in your path. And with every sermon that you hear, small group you attend, or Bible passage that you read, ask the question, how does this help me grow to love God more and love my neighbors more? Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you most of all for the way that we saw you come into your creation and live this out, that you became like us, Lord. You lowered yourself. You made a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, to not only tell us what this is, but to show us what this is. Lord, Don't let this just stay in our heart, in our heads. I know for me, it's easy to understand concepts, but that doesn't mean I internalize them in my heart. That doesn't mean I always feel and believe and act on them. Lord, let us do that today. Fill us up so much with your love. Uh, Many of us may feel dry and in need of that. So God, we ask that. We ask that you would replenish us. We ask that we would feel and experience and really gain and receive your love. And Lord, let that just flow out naturally. So this is not just about trying so hard to be good to other people, but Lord, let it be your love that comes back to you and out to our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.